0: Welcome to the 100% Finance Podcast with Juan Pablo, the podcast where we will show you how to get income producing assets like real estate and businesses with little to no money out of your pocket so you can say goodbye to the nine to five and be financially free.
1: Here's
0: your host, Mr. Cashflow, Mr. Credit Repair, Mr. Business Credit. Mr. Buy and Hole until the wheels fall off, the people's mentor, Juan Pablo. But I'm Juan Pablo. I'm here with uh, Daryl. He's going to, uh, again, uh, spearhead the call in regard to wholesaling. And if you uh, have any questions, again, we'll tell you when you can ask. And if you can just keep your questions real estate related, then uh, we we would greatly appreciate it. So, again, if you haven't done so already, just keep your phone on mute if you're not speaking, and the topic is uh, wholesaling, and he'll continue on with this boot camp we've, we've been doing. All right. So, uh, Daryl, this is all you. Hey, Juan. No problem. Again, this is Daryl
2: Fitzgerald. Just want to go over everything with you guys. Um, this is actually a third call. So, we started off with the wholesale mindset, marketing, then we went into, you know, how to build your buyers list. And then now we're going to focus a little bit on just evaluating your deals, how to estimate, you know, the re- rehab a little quicker, writing contracts, and then kind of just getting the basic, you know, negotiating with the sellers. Uh, so one thing I wanted to talk about, even as we went over, you know, just getting a better understanding of what your buyer's buying criteria is into now evaluating your rehab, you know, getting a quick estimate, what all does a rehab entail? You know, how can you, the wholesaler, uh, paint a rehab picture for your potential buyer? So what we did in the beginning, we actually, you know, provide you guys with the quick rehab estimate sheet. If you have access to it, great. If not, I'll just go over, you know, some basic information. That will help you guys better understand it. So when it comes to rehabbing for, you know, just wholesaling, uh Buying your your buying your fix and flip investors or your buy and hold investors. There's a couple things you want to evaluate going forward. When you look at it, there's the kitchen and bath. There's your floor. It's your drywall. You know your paint, your mechanicals, which are most important. Um, and those are going to include you know say your electrical, your plumbing, uh, your roofing, your HVAC. And then following those, you'll have more so the structure in the roof. So as a wholesaler, it's about how quick can you get the numbers estimated, get an offer over to the potential seller, and then quickly start marketing that property to your end buyer. Now I like to work it backwards for the most part and that's more that's me finding my buyers Figuring out, you know, what the buyers want and then going to fill that need uh, versus actually having inventory and then locating the buyers. Sometimes they work hand-in-hand. Hand. If you can find a buyer first and you're, know, you know, marketing the property at the same time, you can, make the, you can make it work just as quick and, you know, just as seamlessly. Um, now, something that's important also on it where we discuss, you know, what was your buyer's buying criteria, you know, what was the level of rehab, that they were looking for. Um, that all you kind of want to break it into, I say, roughly about three categories. So you have your buyer who may want, you know, they just want to focus on your simple in and out rehabs. Those are going to be your buyers that are going to look for cosmetic deals. And when I say cosmetics, I'm looking. They're talking mostly, say, they're looking to go ahead and just, you know, repaint the house, touch up some drywall on it they may actually look into scraping a popcorn ceiling and then just keeping it like a slick finish. Um, they're looking for you to update a kitchen. When we say update kitchen, that either means refacing the cabinet doors, uh, replacing the cabinets, um, adding granite countertops on top of the bathrooms, changing the bath. Uh, what do you want to call it, changing the tubs out and actually retiling the tubs or retiling the showers or even just replacing the tubs and the toilets. Um, even includes just changing regular white appliances and black appliances to even stainless steel There's just even updating appliances out of there. So a lot of these homes may be homes that may typically have been built in, you know, 1950, 1960, and it just needs to be updated. Or it could simply just be a foreclosed home or, you know, a home that had some minor damage. It used to be set for renters, and now somebody's like, hey, I can go ahead and, you know, put – a decent amount of money into this property and now make it either a turnkey rental or actually go ahead and make it a property that would sell to today's traditional buyers. So your investors are mostly looking for deals. Your new investors, I'll call them, your new investors and even some seasoned investors that already have a specific, you know, repair strategy. Some of these guys are going to look and be your cosmetic, um, buyers or you know, your buyers are looking for cosmetic repairs or cosmetic rehab, if you want to call it that. And these will typically range anywhere from, say, your twelve, your $15,000 um, rehab. And, of course, these rehabs are going to depend on what market you're in, you know, or what level of appliance may be needed or what level of, granite. if you're looking at, you know, your, just to give you guys a rough number, if you're looking at, Say just your single family, three bedroom, two bath, two bath, in an average neighborhood, um, where the sales prices are a hundred thousand dollars, you may just go ahead and put some granite in it, or your buyers may go ahead and put granite in it. That's going to cost them twenty two dollars a square foot. If it's going to be more of a higher price point where it's four fifty, you know they may then not be able to put in say your stainless steel Frigidaire appliances stove, I mean, your range, your dishwasher, and your, you know, your fridge to now having to go ahead and they may be putting in, you know, quartz countertops at 40 bucks a square foot or your Viking um, appliances. So it's always good just to get an understanding of what type of buyer that you have and what type of market, you know, you're working in just so you know what level of rehab that they're looking for, okay? And that's more so just on the cosmetic level. And when you look into that next phase, we see roughly three of them. When you look into the second tier roughly, you're looking at your mid-level rehabbers, okay? And in the mid-level rehabbers, these guys are mostly going to, you know, look for properties where they can pick up a home, either gut it down to the studs, and when I say gut down to the studs, I'm pretty much just talking about having somebody come in, demo the walls, um, take the old paneling that they had down, taking the old uh sheetrock that they may have had, and just going in and literally rechanging the electrical, um, redoing the plumbing, rearranging the layout, either adding a bath, adding a kitchen, I mean, not adding a kitchen, but adding a bedroom, adding a bath, opening walls up. These are going to more so be your mid-level guys. And that same 10 to probably say 20K rehab, on your average, we're talking about an average home right now. May then go up to say, you know, 45 k rehab, just because,
1: and it's going to actually
2: be uh, costed them more so based on the time that they actually have to hold that property. So your biggest thing is just trying to quickly go in and visualize. Okay, what does the house need? Is it a house that you know I can simply go ahead and is? Is it going to more so be something where you could look walking in, look and say, okay, all that needs to be done. The carpet needs to be you know, updated or carbon carpet needs to be removed and they can put hardwoods in it? You know, is it something where somebody literally is going to have to come in, gut this down, or, you know, um, literally come in and completely either just knock the home down and then rebuild it and put a new build on top of it? So it's kind of figure just trying to get an idea of where the buyer needs to be. The third level of rehab is going to be more so just like your high-level rehabbers. These are guys that are looking, you know, in gentrification markets where they may be looking to, you know, either updating the old home, or and when I say updated, they may be looking to completely gut, redo the structure, change the exterior of the home, or maybe looking to either add an additional one, which may be an additional 1,000 square feet or 1,200 or 2,500 square feet to fit in the comps in the neighborhood so they can actually get, you know, the return on their money. And put a more updated property in there. Also, sometimes these guys will look at, like I said, either knocking it down completely, and they, in most cases, your high-level rehabbers are going to be people that are interested in lots as well. So it'll change around the country depending on what your market is, depending on your area, whether it be West Coast or Midwest or or um, or even you know South and Northeast. So a lot of these areas, it just depends on what level your market is at. And you'll see more, uh, you'll see more rehabs or more high-level rehabs when I say new construction and new builds when the inventory is actually short. Um, because as there's low inventory on the market, people have to build new homes to actually compensate for the inventory that's not available. And typically, when there's low inventory, you're going to run across buyers who want to buy newer homes. So your high level rehabbers are the ones that are actually going to be able to you know say hey they can look at a property or they'll more so know their area and say okay based on these comps around I'm trying to fit into new construction comps or I'm trying to fit into comps that have literally been more so your tear downs or you know your fire damaged homes so it all just depends on exactly you know, knowing your buyer, knowing what your buyer looks for, and that's why I always try to say, start with the end in mind. So that way, when you have when you have a buyer, you kind of go and shopping based off of what they want. All right, and the part back to just getting how to estimate it with cost-wise, roughly. So with your kitchen and baths, kitchen and baths, when you're looking at them, cost-wise, that's going to be the focus of the rehab for most people. So if you can walk in and literally look and tell if the cabinets are more so new, and when I say new, new you're looking to see, you know, okay, well, how do they open? Are they going to be your European hinges, which are the cabinets that, um, where the hinges are hidden more so? Is it going to be the older style where your hinges are on the outside? Um, is the kitchen cabinet, which a lot of people, you know, even a lot of us just like myself are more into now, are going to be your shaker style, which is kind of like it's a, it's not a flat, but it kind of has like, a, it, it more so it's going to have your border trim around the door. It'll be like a square border trim, okay? So when you're looking for these, most of the homes you want to try to determine if it already has granite in it. Um, does it have, you know, a laminate countertop? These are all going to be important when you can walk through a property and kind of just in the feel and the bill for how can you, one, talk the buyer down, and two, what's going to be important for your seller when it actually comes to the rehab because if you know the property more so and they say, hey, well, you know, what does it need in rehab? All they really care about is you just giving them a quick estimate of the important levels of what can be done. They're not concerned with, you know, um, if their biggest concern is not going to be mostly exactly what step-by-step, you know, do I need to do? Do you have a itemized repair list of what needs to be rehab? Mostly just what's going to be the major cost as far as what I need to do to get this property um, to the ARB that that they're looking for. Uh, Now, when it comes to the flooring, the flooring you can tell. Most places right now, majority of buyers across the country are going to want hardwood floors. So the property already has hardwoods, or you can quickly look and mostly just walking through the home, you can tell how stable the floor is. Okay, how stable the floor will help them get a better picture of do I need to put more support structures under there. Now, before I jump over the floor, your kitchen and bath, one rule of thumb which you may even want to use just on your repair costs are going to be, uh, i trying to see I can give you guys an idea. If somebody has to go ahead and gut a kitchen, let's say on the low end they're going to be looking at about roughly, say, five grand in there, and on the low end I'm Speaking of probably about depending on the size of the kitchen, uh, it'll fluctuate, but you're gonna look at a minimum rough cost of almost a thousand thousand dollars plus on any size of the kitchen if somebody just has to add granite to it. You're looking at say another fifteen hundred dollars, fifteen hundred to two grand, just based on the type of appliance that they're gonna to need to add in there, whether it be a stove, range, dishwasher, uh, refrigerator. Uh, now, also on there with cabinets, cabinets are expensive. So if there's cabinets that are there, a lot of times those cabinets can either be painted, stained, um, you know, if they fit pretty good. One thing a lot of people, especially like myself do now, is if there's cabinets and I can save the cabinets and just replace the doors, there's different places out there that will actually just sell you the door. The doors may cost you, you know, 10 to $12 a door to replace but it's going to be a lot cheaper than, say, paying almost $130 per cabinet, you know, or even a little higher or lower, depending on where you get the cabinets from. Um, So just keep trying to get an idea of roughly just cost-wise. And for you, it's not about, you know, getting an idea of how much – what vanity am I going to put in there, what style of vanity. Just getting the overall cost of saying, okay, well, here's what needs to be done in the kitchen. The kitchen uh, Mm – The kitchen, the sink, the countertop, well, sorry about that, not the sink more so, but just the kitchen, the countertop, and uh, the cabinets, and the floors when you're walking to the kitchen. Now, if it's the ceiling, the ceiling, you know, you can look and kind of just look for leaks. If it looks like, you know, you can look up in the ceiling and try to determine if there's brown spots, if there's cracks in the ceiling. More than likely, you know there may be an issue there, but you just kind of want to get an idea and ask the homeowner. So, what's the scenario? If you see a leaks in the ceiling, if you see leaks in the ceiling, chances are that it means it's leaking from somewhere in the roof. Okay. Uh, another thing is the drywall. When you look at the walls, is the home does the home have wood paneling? And if it does, you know you kind of just want to make a note of that. So when you actually do code to the seller, you're trying to figure out what's the best method to reduce. Your price as low as possible, and with wood paneling, a lot of times when you pull those wood panels back, they're hiding something behind the wall. So, you know, the paint part of it, paint, caulk, a lot of those can fix most things on it. But for your buyers, they're want they're going to want to try to nickel and dime you every way that they can when they look at a property. They're going to want to try to pull every, you know, everything down on costs. But depending on where you're at in your market, hot deals aren't going to sit around for too long. So one thing that's going to cause a deal not to move is, one, it's not price right, or, two, you are – you literally – you might be in the wrong area. You might have the wrong property for the uh, – you might have the wrong property. The right You might have the wrong property with the wrong buyer. Okay, so – The most important things when it comes to these properties, besides the structure, making sure there's no you know structural cracks or anything, of course, are going to be the electrical. Electric, electrical, roughly on average, you may be looking at about five grand, literally, to just go ahead and rewire a house. Most houses might need, might not need that, but when you look at an electrical box on there, you can tell the difference between your buyers are going to want to know if it's a knob and tube wiring, you know, versus your breakers. And the reason being is a lot of these rehab costs, or, sorry, not even the rehab costs, but a lot of these rehab buyers, when they actually go ahead, fix a property, they're trying to sell it to a traditional buyer, which is going to go through your FHA or your conventional financing. And when they you know, get these buyers that, are, that have, you know, that specific and they're going to be required to actually go ahead and get an inspection. An inspection is going to require that these properties are met and kept up to a certain code. Okay, so they'll look sometimes and that can have an effect on the cost and the rehab level of what they can do. So if it's a buyer that's looking to do a cosmetic rehab, but the whole house has knob and tube uh, wiring on it, that's going to be an additional cost where they're probably going to have to rewire that entire house or just fix certain areas on the house to make it make sense. Now, when it comes to plumbing, depending on, you know, when the house was built, your older homes are going to more so have your galvanized pipe. All right. In today's day and age, most homes now are all done with PVC, PVC, CPVC, and when they say CPVC, that's just the small uh, the terminology for it. But PVC are going to be the huge pipes that you see ran under your home. CPVC are going to be the pipes that are ran within the home. Which, when I say CPVC, you'll be looking at your sink faucets, your uh, tub drains, all of those different pipes. Your, you know, your plumbing uh, for the dishwasher, not dishwash line, but your sink sink lines in the kitchen, those are going to be your CPVC pipes. And the reason for them is they don't crack like your old homes do with the galvanized pipe. So you kind of just want to get a feeling understanding of what the different words and different terminology for, you know, that your your buyers may come and ask you based on the property. Now with plumbing, a house can cost you roughly about $5,000 to re-plumb an entire house. You know, sometimes it'll be a little cheaper, and most of the time it's they're investors, if they're an experienced investors, they're probably going to be able to get it a little cheaper where, you know, you just want to account for these things when you're coming up with your repair estimate. Where you know if the plumbing's messed up, you know, or the plumbing's not there, you got to account for that. Um, the roof. Looking at a roof, typically, you'll be able to tell if it's a newer roof or you'll be able to tell if it's an older roof. Uh, now, most homes that... You see today, we'll probably have the gutters on them. If they don't have gutters, nine times out of ten, it should be a red flag because what's happening is the water running down the side of the house, running onto the foundation, which can cause foundation issues. So if you see a house that doesn't have gutters, you kind of want to inquire of how long has that house been vacant, um, if it is vacant, and also just look around the foundation of the house just to determine you know, where's the water running to? If it's not running and being drained away from the home, it's running somewhere, um, which is probably going to be close to the structure of the home. And when you, just to get a factor, if a home doesn't have gutters on it, that's going to be roughly another 1000 to, you know, it's going to be another 1000 plus um, cost-wise. All right. So your biggest number one expense after you pass those issues typically is going to be the ASAC. HVAC is, you know, HVAC is HVAC. And when we say that, most homes, if they've been vacant, depending on your area, if it's a good area, your piping may still be there. But if it's an area that's kind of not your best neighborhood, it's going to have your copper lines, which may have been stolen. Okay? And once the copper lines, even though they may be, you know, $200 for a set of lines to go from the AC condenser over to your furnace, that $200 line set, once it's been cut, it's going to cost you a lot more than 200 bucks, And your, um, your buyer is going to probably try to put that cost back on you, which in good terms means you might want to put that cost on the seller. Where you're like, hey, look, even if they're trying to sell you a home that's vacant, the AC unit is there. Um, it's probably there because it's an old AC unit. If the AC unit is gone and the copper lines are gone, it probably just means that they took those as well. Uh, now with the cost of if the lines were cut, what has to happen is you gotta run your your uh, your R twenty well, well you gotta run your A C fluid through it. The A C fluid which is gonna be like your R twenty two or forget the other one that's there. But these different coolants that keep the home cool are expensive. Where if you have an A C unit which may be a three and a half ton A C unit um, or four or five times, you could be looking at almost ten pounds, literally, just of refrigerant, and that refrigerant can add up to, say, anywhere from about forty dollars to about seventy-five dollars a pound, just for the refrigerant alone. Let alone you got to find a uh, an, HV, uh, an HVAC specialist to come out and have that put in. So these are just different costs that you just want to encourage just to get an idea. So when you're looking for them, look for those things first on it. Check out the structure. Uh, determine you know the structure looks pretty sound. Now again, it's not your job. You're not the one buying the home, but you want to do a good enough research so you have an understanding of what the seller um, or what the buyer's level of rehab is. Because you can go ahead and look, man. If this needs a new roof, needs a new HVAC system, new plumbing, new electrical, and you got a cosmetic buyer over here, you already know that it's going to be a waste of time sending them that deal because. That's not in their wheelhouse of what they do, okay? Now, if it's actually uh, nothing we left out with the hot water heaters. So on your hot water heaters, you're going to be looking at almost anywhere from, say, three dollars to $600 plus if the hot water heater is not there and it needs to be replaced, okay? And when that needs to be done, that's another cost that needs to be incurred. So you might want to include that in the HVAC cost, so, okay? If I have somebody that needs to have this repaired, that's what the cost is going to be on it. Now, I just want to give you guys a heads up as far as you know repairs were concerned. Um, one thing I think we need to jump to, and even just get questions why we had it, was just on the contract side. So, got an understanding of your repairs, different repairs that maybe may have to be completed on the house. Now you walk through, you got an understanding of, you know, the seller wants to sell. Now you're trying to figure out. Okay, here goes what I need to do. I need to get a contract on this property um, because the only way you're going to get any deals if you have is that you have to make offers. If you're not making offers, you're not getting deals. So in the contract that you're preparing, um, one thing that's important to have the sellers deliver is you want to make sure that they can deliver a clear title. Okay? Now... Somebody I remember earlier in a previous call asked about, well, how soon should I go and order a title search? Now, that can depend based on – that would depend based on your actual uh, – depend on how much money you actually want to spend, how confident you are about finding a buyer. Uh, sometimes for us, if it's a deal we're so confident about, we'll just go ahead and, you know, just order the title search. But in instances where you're not too confident if you can line a buyer up for it, I would recommend you not pulling a title search at least until you have somebody who has the interest and more so than likely has, is willing to make an offer on it. Now, immediately once you pull the title search, depending on, you know, your attorney or title company, um, you can, in some instances, ask them to put a rush on it. We had a title where we have a closing coming up, I think, on the 30th. It's just on a rehab property, but we have a closing that's coming up on the 30th. The, you know, appraisal came back and the inspection came back. It didn't make sense for us to order the appraisal, but if the closing is happening about seven days out and we need the title back within seven days, all we did was ask the attorney, hey, can you guys put a rush on it so we can get it back pretty quick, and we got the title back in about two days. Uh, so. In certain instances, you can get your title searches done a lot quicker. It's all about just building relationships with, you know, your attorneys, or title company. Um, another thing on it is cost wise. If you feel that you know you may not have, if you don't want to put the money out right away to actually have the title completed, figure out what attorneys are available and just try to get a feel for them. You may there's attorneys out there where they're not going to charge you for. 125 or whatever the cost of your title search may be, they just want business. They want to earn your business. And if you can bring consistent deals over, that's an importance right there. Um, so try to get them to make sure that they can, you know, ask the homeowner, most importantly, about the title. What's on, you know, do they have any outstanding liens, any outstanding mechanic liens, um, just so that when they go ahead to pull that title, you're confident that you won't have any hiccups when it comes time to sell. All right, and if they do have any issues, you want to make sure that, A, they are issues that can be resolved prior to closing, and if not, you know, are they, are they willing to pay? Are they willing to pay to clear the title? And if there comes an issue where they, you know, have some outstanding liens, sometimes depending on whatever fees you may want to charge for it, you can probably call up and have those fees negotiated, at a far less percentage than what's actually owed on them, and then, you know, have the title still resolved and you know, everything taken care of when it comes time to close. Uh, one thing also with it is the earnest money deposit. When uh, you'll see different wholesalers doing different things as far as earnest money um, on the buy and the sell side. When you're actually buying it from uh, a seller, you want your own earnest money to be as low as possible. Some people go out there and they can get a deal with as little bit as ten dollars earnest money. You want to have some type of skin in the game with it, just so you know it gives you that equitable interest to market, equitable interest to market the property, and that for any reason, if somebody tries to circumvent you, you had some type of losing uh, my losing my train of thought, but you actually had some type of equity interest, equitable interest in the property, and that's backed up by the cash that you actually put down as your earnest money. All right. Uh, because if you ever had to go to court just because the homeowner cuts you out and now you can't turn around and they went around and cut, cut you off as a buyer, you will actually have that where you, you know, have some equitable interest in it. Now, when it comes on the sales side for your earnest money, um, I've seen it all. I've seen people out here charging, you know, $5,000 dollar non-refundable deposit, $1,000, 15000 $1,500 non refundable deposit, for me, in that case, it, it, it doesn't make sense to do that. And The reason why I'm going to tell you is when you're charging non-refundable deposits, um, what you're saying is that for any reason, if this deal cannot close, you're not going to give the buyer that money back, um, and you don't want to so say you shouldn't do business like that just simply because there's several different reasons why a deal can fall apart. A deal could fall apart literally because the seller decides, hey, for some issue with the contracts, it doesn't work out. And if somebody, you know, gave you a, a non-refundable five thousand dollars earnest money deposit, now they're out five grand, you know, and it just doesn't work. On the other side of it, you want to be able to start consistently building your deals up, where you have, if it's a new investor that can get involved, you know, you can say, hey, look, here's a fifteen hundred or $2,500 earnest money deposit. If you can get the $5,000 all day long, I tell you, go for 5000 But what you don't want is you don't want a non-refundable earnest money deposit just because it can kind of put a bad name out there for, the, you know, it can kind of turn a lot of good buyers away just because they'll look at the deal and see the non-refundable deposit and say, hey, it's a no-go. Um, and the reason that some of those deals may fall apart is you have, Something called most people don't know uh, when you when we buy properties we do something which is called an open record search. Open record search doesn't you know there's things that don't show up on title when you order a title report. You can buy a house and encumber lien several months down the road just because they haven't been filed completely filed or put through yet. So always make sure when you're going to you know have a title search provided on it. That I mean always make sure that when you do the title when you do provide a property to somebody, even if it's not refundable, you give them the fact where, hey, look, worst-case scenario, if their due diligence period is completed and they still haven't, you know, they are looking to back out on the contract, you do have that earnest money to fall back on it, and then it's up to you based on your decision on whether you want to give this guy's money, uh, you want to give this man or woman their money back, or whether you actually want to go ahead and, you yeah. know, just uh, keep it for yourself because you gave them an the opportunity to do the deal and they couldn't close. Uh, one thing that is important, I think, also, is make sure you familiar yourself with an investor-friendly title company or real estate attorney. That's important because when it comes time to uh, close your deals, depending on your spread for what you buy the property for and what you sell the property for, you don't always want your end buyer to know how much money you're making. And then I always say that if your uh, assignment fee, when you come to assign the deal, or your fee is more than, say, $5,000, you're going to scare a lot of buyers away. So the best way we do it is we line up a double closing. And all the double closing is an A to B, B to C transaction. Some instances there's even more legs to it than that, but for the most part, your sellers A selling to you, B the investor, and you B, the investor selling to C your end buyer. Okay, now
1: some people may say, "Well,
2: you know, how can I do a double closing with no funds?" Or they calling them wet funds. Um, what happens is there's different things around. There's transactional funding. Um, And even in some instances, depending on your attorney or your title company, they have a better understanding of how to close those transactions where you're not paying, you know, double closing costs, you know, or you're not paying additional, well, not closing costs, but you're not paying additional title fees to close the deal. So. Get an understanding with there for that point in time. Um, another thing on your contracts, what you want to focus on is your days of due diligence. When you're buying the contract, I oh, said not buying the contract, but when you're actually buying the deal, you want to get a decent size amount of due diligence. I would say roughly, if you can go 10 to 15 days, that's good. If you can stretch it out that far, about 15 days due diligence, it'll be good. But you got to educate your buyer on what's taking place. You're educating your buyer that you're buying this property. Um, You know, worst case, if it doesn't make sense for you, you have, you know, you have another buyer that you're looking to market the property to, or that either, you know, hey, look, I have an interest in it, and I want to be able to go out and, you know, locate a buyer that it still makes sense for. I can bring somebody that closes quick, my financial, uh, you know, my funder, you can call them anything you want for the most part on it. Your biggest thing is you just don't want to top somebody's property and really not have a plan on closing that deal because you're putting someone's biggest asset at risk. And just having the knowledge and understanding of how to do it and how to educate them through the process makes it that much more simple. So with your due diligence, you give yourself a decent enough time to evaluate the property, see if you can line up a buyer, and not put your earnest money at risk. And if it's a deal that's a little more solid, that may require you to put up a $1,000 earnest money deposit, or you know a $500 earnest money deposit with the actual seller, you can make that judgment based on the how good the deal may be for your buyer. And when you're looking at these deals on, you know, how much money you can make, you always want to look on, man, how much money am I leaving on the table? Is this a deal if I were a rehabber that I would pick up for myself? You know, and when you find deals like that that make sense, you can move those. You got people right now literally looking for uh, me being one of them, me being one of the buyers. When there's deals that make sense that are no, buy, no uh, brainers, buyers will pick them up. I literally had a wholesaler who sent us, who had a property, didn't have access. To, he doesn't have access to it until tomorrow, but I knew the area, I knew the numbers, and based on the price where he was
1: moving it at,
2: it was a no-brainer for me where I was like literally I get out there, take a quick look at the property, and I already had the contract, but all I had all I needed to do was just see the property in the meeting. So it just all depends on you know, knowing your area, knowing where the property's at, getting a feel for the you know, getting a feel for how your buyers work and then providing deals that make sense for both, you know, the, you just want to create like a win win opportunity. Some people win a little more than others, but at the end of the day, you want everybody to feel confident that you know they got kind of what they were looking for, and that with the buyers, you can consistently keep bringing them deals. Once you find a good buyer that that's looking to buy deals, they will always buy deals from you if you just consistently can keep bringing deals, and then they, then you get an idea of how everybody closes. So, due diligence. Why well, I say 10 to 15 days. Um, you know, 10 to 15 days roughly because it gives you enough time to make an evaluation. Some buyers are going to want you to, you know, they'll say, hey, well, I give you five to seven days. There's different ways you can do it. Five to seven, you always want to make sure those are business days. Um, and if so, you can start to due diligence on Friday, and that would be one day, and you don't start to get until Monday. Now, you know, that would be your second day. Now, again, it's all about, you know, it's all about trying to be transparent and Working stuff with the mindset of closing the deal in mind—that's kind of where you want to be at. For it. but your biggest thing is you have to protect yourself, uh, just so you know, because you, you have capital at risk, and not only capital, you have your name, which is important. That you know—you don't want to get a bad name. But somebody's like, "Hey, I know with this person and this experience; it was terrible. We couldn't close the deal. You know, the transaction fell apart. They told me a deal." not more so even just selling a deal that wasn't a deal, but when it came time to close the deal, the nobody had an understanding of how to work this transaction. Okay, and your title company or your title agent, they'll be able to know immediately once you get them the contract they want, which is going to be a contract from, you know, a contract with your seller and a contract with, you know, your buyer. You get those over to them. Those guys can make sure that everything is lined up because they want to make sure it's closed properly, and then from that point, you can bring the deal together and then hand it off to your attorney or experience title company
1: that will have
2: an idea how. Okay. we at, time Oh, wow. Okay, so um, just want to give you guys a heads up with it. Um,
1: as far as your closing date,
2: you have to understand how, you know, your buyer's closed Buyers typically are going to close the date realistically anywhere from 12 to 18 days. Seven days can be done. It's pushing it a little bit, but more so when you actually have your, uh, you know, if you have your finances, whether it be a you know, hard money lender, they're going to still need to order an appraisal, get their valuation on the property, and then figure out, you know, a timeline of getting all the dots needed from the potential buyer and then they'll have to line up a closing from that point. But immediately once you have somebody that's interested, you can still order your title in enough time. The only risky part about that is when ordering the title, you want to make sure that it comes back clean. And a lot of owners won't know whether it be medical medical liens or mechanical liens of what might be on their property. Most people should know, um, but depending on how old the property is, they might not know. So... That's kind of it for right now. Just want to leave you guys with that and
0: kind of open everything
1: up
0: for some questions. Yeah. So if you guys have any questions that you just keep it, you know, uh, real estate related, just state your name and your city, uh, we'll appreciate it. So just, you know, if you have a question, go ahead. Yeah, this is uh, Eric
3: Howard. Uh, out of Washington, when you, when you actually uh, buying the uh, property from the seller, how many days do you you should give the seller until you actually be able to finish the whole process? Sure, you typically
2: you can push it back to about thirty days is good. Um, thirty days is it's a long time, and most sellers. If they have, you could even push it close to 30 to 45 days. The reason I say that is most sellers are familiar with traditional financing, and depending on whether you go to a Wells Fargo or, you know, if it's, a, if it's an average loan, it's going to take them anywhere from about 30 to 45 days to close a deal. So some of them have an understanding of that. What most are going to like to see from it is that you can close quick and close quick with cash. Um, the difference, why I said trying to bring it down less than 30, you want to give yourself enough time to Line your buyer up. If you already have a buyer that's lined up and they can close with cash, your buyer's typically going to be able to close in roughly on the low end, let's say 10 to about 10 to 14, 10 to 15 days, which kind of always going to give yourself just a little window. Okay. okay. All right.
3: We'll thanks, Jared, for your question. Go ahead. What would happen if, uh, let's say, okay, you get a house on the contract for thirty days, right? And okay. you're not able and you're not able to sell that house within thirty days.
2: Sure. What's gonna happen is one year what happens first is there's a due diligence period that your buyer has, depending on how you structure your contract. All right. And at first if you're not able to sell it, your earnest money would be at risk. Okay, and the one reason with 30 days, you kind of want to get a feel for marketing and selling the property sooner. Um, If you got an understanding of, you know, the – what do I want to say? If you got an understanding of why the home's not selling, if it's not in a hot enough area or it's not priced appropriately enough, you want to find out what the reason is, why it's not gaining interest that it's gaining. Either it's, you know – further off from where people are buying, um, it's priced too high, or it's it's really priced too high, which I'll say one more thing, which just means in some instances you may have to come back to your seller, or you may not be getting enough traffic, you may have to come back to your seller and just determine, okay, how can I, you know, um, this is where some of my, this is the feedback I'm getting. Uh, Well, you can't tell them that, but the feedback that you're getting from me just said, hey, look, I need a little bit more leverage with it. my team. You know, once we ran everything on it, the numbers of where we're at aren't making sense. You don't want to keep going back to your sellers too much. That's kind of why you want to find out early as possible, basically, on where you think you can move this at. And then if you get, you know, once you get an offer, then working it from a point where you can come
3: down several grand and then. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to say, um, could you use that actually as a tactic? Let's say you do get a property on a contract at a good price, and then you come back to the seller maybe a week later and be like, well, due to, like, due to my numbers, you know, my team looking at it, we're going to have to come down a little bit more. Would you use it as a tactic or not?
2: The yeah, It would depend on your area. Now, because if it's in a hot area where there's a lot of traffic, um, what's going to happen is your seller's probably receiving a ton of different postcards, marketing in the mail. So they already know, depending on your area, they already know what their home's worth, and they're already going to come at a lot higher than what you expect them to come in at. So, you know, their number is already going to be pretty high, which is pushing your – it's shrinking your margin for the most part. So most of the times when you actually do come back to them, you'll want to do it once you actually have a solid offer there. So that way you don't have to keep coming back and forth to the seller because if you came down one time and your buyer comes and says, hey, look, you know, I like the property, I need to be here, and that was your one shot and you just came down and your buyer, it's going to be hard to come back again and come down on
3: Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. That makes sense.
0: Okay, great. Any other questions? Any other questions about wholesaling? All right, going once, going twice. All right, so what we'll do is, um, Daryl and I, were uh, we're just brainstorming now about having, like, a uh, another um, wholesaling boot camp, but it's going to be made in conjunction with flipping. As you know, he, he talked a lot about it, a lot of stuff today that uh, goes along with flipping. If you if you had the financial means to do so, like he said, with the hundreds financing, like if you had hard money, for example, instead of you wholesaling for a quick profit, you can just keep the property and, uh, and flip it for a big profit. You know, it just depends on if you're interested in doing that. You know, if you're if you're into renovations and things of that nature, and you're looking for a big payout on the end, you can you can definitely entertain that. So it'll be like a two-day thing. Normally, uh, while we're we're trying to draft out the days um, based upon each other's schedules, so it'll be like a uh, a two-day event, a weekend, where one day we'll spend. Because we had about four calls with uh, with this hotel boot camp, and each call ran about an hour or so in length, hour and a half tops. So we think that we can probably knock it out in four hours each. So we might have one Saturday afternoon where it's four hours. It's, it's a boot camp. It's be four hours of uh, wholesaling, and then the next day will be uh, four hours of flipping. So if you guys already purchased the um, wholesaling boot camp, you know you don't have to attend a wholesale one that we'll, we'll host, obviously, but if you're interested in the flipping one, we can do that for you. And we're just thinking about, the right price to charge, and perhaps we can give a discount if you if you enroll in both of them. But um, we're just trying to just work out the details. But I just want to put it out there. But if you guys are interested, just uh, send me an email at 100 percentfinancegmailcom and then I can uh, send you out the details. So you're gonna so be uh, we'll wholesaling for one day.
2: Go ahead. No, I was gonna say something else. Even why why it's important even to understand wholesaling first is just because I do rehabs and wholesales. And wholesale deals also at the same point in time, um, and some instances they work hand in hand. I'll give you an example with the one we're doing. We're doing one now. Looks like probably close um, out in the top county area. Um, our purchase price on there roughly say is seventy-five grand. Okay, so I think it's seventy-five. Yeah, it's about seventy-five. And what I do in most instances is I raise capital for the rest of my money, but so I get paid up front. You know, I wholesale deals to myself that we rehab. So we have two companies that may have, you know, another one. And in some instances, we actually wholesale deals to ourselves. Or another, you know, we have a wholesale, I guess, company, and then we still wholesale the deal. Because the most important thing is you always want to be able to make money first on your deals. Whether you're rehabbing, some people buy and rehab, you know, we don't do it on every deal. But some deals where the money is there, we'll actually just wholesale it to ourselves and take our fee up front you know, as a wholesaler, and then turn around and you know rehab it and put it back on the market. And there's tons of different financing out available now, where your typical hard money, you know, on average is 20% down. The um, 20% down, you're looking at 14 points, uh, you know, on average, or well, let's say, let's say 12 to 14, 12 to 14, 12 to 15% interest, interest-only payment. And it's about anywhere from four to six points. You know, there's different guys out there now, you know, different hard money lenders and finances where we're getting 10% down. So at a same deal that I might have been picking up, you know, at what do i call that, we'll say $250,000 $250, purchase price with hundred k in rehab, I'm all in at 20% would roughly be, what, about almost, Sixty, seventy thousand dollars, probably sixty, seven. Yeah, so about sixty thousand dollars. That same deal, I might be coming close to about, you know, say thirty-five, forty grand. I've seen it on it. On your smaller deal, say for instance, if you know it's a sixty k purchase price, twenty k in rehab, your after repair value is one forty. You know, you may be all in. You're all in at ninety, but versus bringing twenty k or almost close to twenty k at closing, you could turn around and you only may need to bring in. You know say eight or nine grand okay and if you're able to wholesale that deal to yourself at ten grand you you turn around and use the same money we don't know financing of course you could possibly use that money later to go ahead and finance deals further further just a adds up just want to share that
3: yeah about, this is Eric Howard again from Seattle Washington um do you now when you do when you do it that way do you pay yourself the wholesale fee right then and there, or do you wait till you actually flip the property?
2: Depends on your uh, – no, you pay your, you pay your fee right up front.
3: Okay. pay that closing.
1: Yeah, you pay that
2: closing. Right. Yeah, okay. closing. Typically, most of your – some of your attorneys can – I'm not an attorney now, but, you know, you can talk a little further with it where you have a better understanding of how it works, you know, but you, you do have that option in some instances there as well. Because all that happens is that you just double you're just double closing on the deal. So just like oh, okay. I was telling you earlier, like, you know, you got your A to B, your B to C transaction. That's how it works. And what you're doing is more so just trying to trying to finance your down payment. You know, some people sometimes you want to make sure you have the you got the money to do it. It's great, but even if you don't, you're kind of just repaying yourself that. And then you may have the funds available to what I call it, to cover the you know the reserves, the holding costs, and so forth.
3: Okay. Uh, yeah, you make a big spread that, going that way. Uh.
1: Okay, I got a quick question. Okay, so basically what you're saying is if you bought a house that was at 64000 and it was appraised at a hundred, you would turn around and sell it to yourself at 74000 so you would make ten ten grand at the closing and you could use that money to go ahead and do your repairs or whatever have you. Exactly. Okay. Yeah,
0: so so like I just, wouldn't
1: that make the, the down payment go well, up as well? Of course. What will happen is your down payment,
2: they go up. But it depends on how you like to have your cash in some instances. we're depending on, say, if, you know, depending on the financier I use, one of the guys, maybe they, they do two loans. Your typical hard money is 65% of the ARV. Another company we use, they'll go up to 65%, but they'll require us, with the 10% down, um, they'll only lend if we can buy the property at 90% of the asset value. So if the asset value of the property today is $100,000 and I'm buying that same property even with me upping the price on my uh, my wholesale, even with me upping it up at, you know, say if I buy it at 80, I got a discount on it when I actually got the property from the seller, I just wholesale the deal to myself, you
3: know, and and then, So it's, okay, so, that he, so that's still the twenty thousand dollars to rehab.
2: Exactly. Like the the difference of what happens there is, in some instances, you don't want to. You when you're doing scenarios like that, you want to figure out the amount of money that's that is going to be paid on the front end is going to be paid on the back end. On the back end of your profits, you're going to have to pay capital gains tax on everything you earn on the back end because it's rehab flip. So in some instances, if I can alleviate that up front, with the wholesaling, somebody's going to wholesale the deal. The lenders don't really care who the buyer is. They don't want the buyer to be John Doe, and then John Doe sold on the property, but they're all LLCs. So it's just about how you structure your deals. You know, you can be creative with it. You can learn a lot. You can work with your, you know, your CPAs. I'm not a CPA at all. Um, but there's different ways to actually structuring deals where you can make them work, you can make them make sense. Um, it's, just about, it's just about working them, putting them together.
1: Okay. Uh, my, my last question was yesterday I went out and started doing the legwork on looking at, you know, the uh, actual interest rate of uh, doing rehab loans. And I realized okay. that a lot of these banks won't do a rehab loan anymore, uh, I guess, prior to 2010. So now you have to go through the Fannie Mae. So is that how you guys are uh, doing your rehab loans? If you needed to? No,
2: you want you want to, you don't you don't want to do
1: a lot of times with your with your rehab loans. Those
2: are going to be for traditional buyers, and those are going to be like your FHA 203k loans. Okay, now those are going to be more where they require you to come, you know, uh, with your bench you're, you're going to want to see more of your financials on it. You're going to want to know your job history and everything else for the most part. What you want to look into mostly are going to be your hard money lenders. Um, There's a ton you can Google hard money lender out there. And what these guys are more so they provide portfolio funding, but they're going to be lenders that specifically work with investors. And what they're lending on is basically they're lending based on the asset used to be more so primarily the asset but they have little their qualifications are a lot less than say, if you went to a traditional bank looking for financing okay so they'll lend you their formulas are going to be 65% of the after repair value so you buy a property at a hundred thousand um, once it's fixed up 65% I think should be about 140 140, 140 somewhere in that area okay yeah. I probably just mess the numbers up with it right now but um, calculate. So
1: no, no no I get what you're saying. So you have to be at least forty thousand dollars under what it is valued at. All fees included. And...
2: All exactly. Fees. I, I rehab included.
1: Right. So the rehab couldn't couldn't even reach the maximum of what the house is worth.
2: Nah, no, and you would never want it to because you would make we would make no profit on it.
0: Yeah, you'll break even. It's yeah, like you'll break even, or you'll be at a loss. Yeah, it's like you basically want when you're when you're entertaining a deal like that, and if you're if you're wholesaling, you also want to factor in your wholesale fee. So it's kind of like the rehab plus the purchase price plus your wholesale fee should be about sixty-five to seventy percent of what it'll be worth after repairs are paid. Exactly. So that's kind of like the formula you wanna you wanna model. And you want to use hard money like, like they're old fans because um, lenders won't lend on a property that's not habitable. Like he said, if it's a copper spice missing or mold damage or there's no – it's just unbreak, no kitchen, you know, things were stolen out of the property, they're not going to lend on that. That's not a safe um, investment for them. But hard money lenders will because it's more so asset-based because they're like, wow, this is a ton of equity. So worst case scenario, if this guy defaults and don't pay us, at least we can still save our money because we have so much equity in this house. So that's. I normally recommend people, like if you're looking to do hard money, just contact about 10 hard money lenders in your area. They're they're, they're local, so they don't adhere to uh, the secondary mortgage market, you know, Fannie and Freddie. They don't have to adhere to their guidelines, so they make up their own terms. So every hard money lender is different. One might say, oh, I do 12% and I require a 20% down payment. Another hard money lender might say, well, we do 15% over here and no down down payment is required. And I've actually worked with maybe like three hard money lenders and each one of them had different terms. Some say, oh, it's a prepayment penalty. If you do the rehab and fix it up, get a tenant in there, within, I don't know, two months, you still owe me six months' worth of interest payments. Some of them are like I don't I can care less if you get it done in three months then you're just out of the out the loan for three months you always for six months that's a prepayment ability you know so you you just got to shop around to see which one has the best terms as well as which one do you qualify for and then you just yep. go with the best one that suits your needs.
3: Do some of these some of them require that you have a, like a good credit score? Or? No. No, it's the, the credit, credit they
2: don't they don't care. Yeah, they 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 you they want to see a decent credit. They want you to be at least say probably I want to see a 620. You probably even get it done with a 580. The biggest thing that they don't want to see is they don't want to see bankruptcies. Um, your higher ones aren't going to want to see you know they're not going to want to see any judgments, any liens that you defaulted on any mortgages. They kind of want just somebody decent enough that they know that's going to repay the deal. They're not worried if you. They have like a 640 score or you don't have much credit. They're not looking at your credit to see what you buy and you're more so what your DTI is. They're focused on what do you pay your bills. Do you have any major, you know, uh, they're not even really too worried about collections. They're mostly concerned about your judgments. Judgments, your mortgages, are you paying your mortgage, you know, your mortgage is taken care of, kind of like that. that's their
0: focus more so. It's more like what I'm saying is asset-based. Mm-hmm. And you can shop around. Like sometimes, like uh, one of them, he just wanted to see my credit report. Send it over to him. He's like, all right, it's cool. But he's like, being that you're out of state, instead of one point, which is a, a percent of the loan amount. So if you're borrowing from a hundred thousand dollars from hard money lender, you just have to repay him an additional thousand dollars. He's like, instead of one point, it'll be two points since you're out of state. And he can do that because he's a old guy who got flip money, and he can just create his own terms. You know what I'm saying? Or some of them, they just might say, "All right, just tell us your credit score." I had another one, a uh, do hard money. That's one of them right there. They they do that yeah. yeah, you can check them out. And do hard money, the dude there, uh, I think his name's Julian. He's like, just just send me your credit, your FICO score. You don't have to give me no report. He can care less. Yeah. You know, as long as the deal, as long as the numbers work, and if you default, man, he just Take over the property. It'll take the house, and and sell it to someone else.
2: They don't want to take your home. You know, they want to make money off of lending because how those guys work is they make money based on how quick they turn the money. If they got five people, for example, with a hundred thousand dollars, five people with a hundred grand is five hundred thousand dollars. They got a bank loan for that. Now, if they go and they turn that money three times in a year, they turn that five hundred thousand three times send it out, made interest off it, brought it back. Now they can go back to the bank a year from now and say, hey, look, let me leverage this capital. And that's where they start making their money. They start making real money by how quickly and how many times they turn the money. So they don't want the property, but they know they're buying it at such a good number. It's a no-brainer for them to do the deal, as long as it fits the numbers in the matrix.
0: Yeah, we'll be talking about that that in length, too, for the uh, flipping portion about hard money, like how to finance it. But go ahead.
1: Okay, with uh, you doing all this hard money lenders, so say you have a a seller's finance and then you have a hard money lender who's uh, willing to put up the money for the down payment. Now, how do you go ahead and divvy up the payment for them and uh, the the financing seller?
2: You got to break a lot of that down towards the end. The important side of that is going to be everybody's going to want you to have some of your own skin in the game. Okay, so... You know, we got a portion, like he was going to say, we'll cover a good portion of that on there. But you always want, they're going to want to make sure you have some, of, some of your own capital in the game. Because the biggest thing, like anybody will say, what do you have to lose? If you don't have any skin in the game, you really don't have much to lose yourself on it. So with the owner financing, they'll look at it, but they're still going to want to require you. It'd be like saying if the owner said they're going to finance 50% or 20% of the deal, they're still going to want you to bring something to the table as far as it. Now, breaking down the money you have to break that up based on how much your payments are going to be with everybody. You know, your payments are probably going to be interest only, but you're going to have to break that split up depending on, you know, how you have it lined up.
0: Yeah, and they, and they want skinning in the game. You can always get that through other means. I mean, I've some sure. plenty of deals. You, you bring a partner in or you bring uh, business credit if you have something like that in which you can finance that down payment. As long as the numbers work, and you can uh, afford the holding cost then you all it? means that they do it so you got you got to just consider all factors I think that's a common mistake most people make starting out they don't consider all factors especially holding costs if you're deciding to uh to flip a deal or cause you're going to be paying high interest rate during the interim and utilities and having a reserves in case you make a mistake all that stuff
1: Okay. All right, so any,
0: uh, any other calls? Just to make time for just one more call, I mean, one more question.
3: Well, I, I just have a question about um, having a conversation with you, like, on the phone. Is, is uh you have a time that's available where I can talk to you? Because I wanted to um, ask you about some of your other programs that you have, your credit repair, and I want, I want. I mean, I'm curious about you know adding that to my business. So, is there is there a time where you comfortable that I
0: can actually call you? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Uh, that brings up a point too. We're actually having a uh, a free credit repair call tomorrow as well. Well, it's, it's free for, for whoever wants to attend, but <clears throat> but it normally it's paid. Just like this call, people actually pay for this call. I just open it, just. Just in case the people just want to see what the calls are like. But we also have a credit repair call. So I'll suggest, you know, join that call. And then after uh, you see how it goes and you have any questions, and then we'll talk afterwards. Then we'll talk about uh, if you want to start your own credit repair business. And then we can, we can discuss that. But the information about that is on our website as well. And the website is up, and um, it's doing some revisions to it, but it's, it's back up and running now. Do you want link, or what, what is the
3: actual telephone number, or did I email you to get that information? Or? The same in I can't hear you. Um,
0: I guess it's someone's phone. It's the same call-in information. It will just be uh, tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time.
3: The same. The same. same information.
0: Yeah, and this, but the only difference is this this call for tomorrow is just a Q and A. It's not like instruction like this call. So it's a first come first serve basis. So whoever calls at, you know, 2:58, it'll be like the first person in line to ask their credit credit repair questions. And it's the same dollar information and meeting ID, the same as this this call here. Yes, sir. And if you want the, the okay. details again, just shoot me an email, and then I'll forward you the, the detailed information, just like I did with this call. Okay. Yeah. I have I have a non-wholesale question.
3: Sure. Um, I, I just bought a property in uh,
2: June, and I wanted to in, uh, put it in a corporation. Uh,
3: I, I, have you done any of that in the past? And where can I go to, to put the uh, incorporate that? put in that uh, corporation?
2: Got, did you buy it uh, in your personal name?
3: Yeah, I bought it personally. Yeah, if you bought it in your
2: personal name, you can literally probably go create it out- Probably just had to go create an LLC and then just sell it to the LLC. I would talk to your CPA also, you know, just so they can make sure it's squared away, you know, proper with the taxes when the tax time comes for you. But um, yeah, you definitely want to get that out of your personal name and um,
3: get it for LLC. I'm looking at maybe C corporation, put it in a C corporation. C corp.
2: Yeah, or even it depends on you know how you like to you know it, it depends on your. Your personal, I guess, setup, you know, how you're going to have your business set up, whether you're doing it under one main LLC or if it's 123 Main Street LLC, which is going under, you know, kind of like an umbrella. So it all would just depend, or a corp, or, you know, how it depends on how you like the structure but I would say definitely get with your accountant just to figure out what is going to be the best setup that, you know, makes the most sense for you. All right. I, I thought about doing it online, but... Uh... Uh,
3: going to incorporate
2: dot com and doing it that way.
3: Um, uh, are you familiar with that, that website or, or anybody doing it that way
1: before if I
2: Yeah, like a you talking about like a legal zoom or one of those. You can. You can do it that way, you know, it's quick to get started with. I think Delaware Inc., um, you know, it's a couple of ones out there. Mm-hmm. But you kinda just at the end of the day you want to make sure you get all your articles and incorporation properly. You can go set a lot of the stuff up yourself with it. Um uh, mm-hmm just want to make sure you do it properly and that's your structure fits what you need because there's different ways when it comes to taxes based on how you, you know, how you work out with Uncle Sam at the end of the year. So there's different tax shelters and, you know, different, uh, I say also just speak to somebody first, even if you can, it may be best to set up something online, get it out your personal name, most importantly, but also make sure, you know, you set it up in a proper way that works for you.
3: Okay, great.
0: Thanks, sir. All right, great. Uh, thanks, Daryl, for your time. So I'll just say, uh, again, if you guys are interested in, in the, uh, I guess the two-day boot camp for uh, wholesaling and flipping, uh, I can shoot you the details. We're just trying to solidify a date that accommodates both of our schedules, but uh, it'll include like a resource page, like the, with this boot camp. Um, the two days of boot camp, which is like four hours each. And uh, if you have any particular topics you guys are, you know, interested in, in having us discuss, and we haven't discussed it already, feel free to email us that information. And uh, I guess we'll also throw in the ebook too. The ebook that I have, uh, the Fastest Way to Financial Freedom, because that that ebook touches on wholesaling and flipping a little bit, but it's mailing for uh, buying and holding. So we'll throw that in as well. As a package, but if you're interested, just shoot me an email. Mm-hmm. But right now, we're just doing the—we uh, still do the group coaching for people who buy the ebook. It's just once a month, and uh, I guess the boost down. But I'll—I'll I'll probably update the website when I when I start that back up again.